there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the gang takeover in Haiti, the escalating tensions on the Poland-Belarus border, and the potential secession crisis in Bosnia. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news show. The Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaks with the French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian, there we go, about the situation in Ukraine. There was reports of Russian troop builds up near the border. Uh, These are disputed claims and disputed as in even the Ukrainians dispute this claim, but they're talking about it anyway as tensions are rising between Russia and a number of countries in Europe alongside the United States. The Honduran president has pledged support and recognition for Taiwan. Militant attacks in Burkina Faso uh, have, I believe, killed 20. Um, They've been really struggling with this. This is a part of the Sahel region where there's been a really large uh, conflict going on. I don't know if I can call it large-scale, other than sort of the area with which it's being fought over. That's the large scale of it all. Otherwise, we're talking about relatively low numbers, but it's still a pretty lethal conflict nonetheless. So militant attacks in Burkina Faso. There were militant attacks in Togo as well, sort of the next-door neighbor further south. Um, But Togo claims to have repulsed militant attacks on their territory... So they seem to be relatively safe for now. Um, I know Nigeria is continuing its fight against militants in this its Sahel border region. Uh, So lots of militant activity in the Sahel and the periphery countries around the Sahel. But um, so far, countries are appearing to hold their ground. Speaking of fighting and holding ground, the Armenian Defense Ministry has reported zero casualties on the border with Azerbaijan. And that comes after recent exchange of fire uh, along the border. But there's no casualties. The fire was brief. And it was stated that the Azerbaijani side was able to get whoever was shooting to stop shooting. And which really leads up to the claim that it was it came from the Azerbaijani side. That's sort of the, the subtleties of the, that statement. But there appears to be peace between Azerbaijan and Armenia, most likely courtesy of the Russians, um, to which I'm pretty sure both the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis are pretty satisfied with. Otherwise, if your peacekeepers can't keep the peace, then what's the point in having them? So, that part of the world has settled down for now, courtesy of the them being enveloped within an empire now, uh, that being the Russian Empire. And speaking of good old Russia, they are now supplying India with S-400 air defense systems. The U.S. is a a little bit indignant about that, but the S-400 seems to be really, really popular with a lot of countries. 
uh, it's a pretty good system. I mean, if it wasn't, people wouldn't be buying it, and the Chinese wouldn't be knocking it off and making their own copy of it. But Russia now is supplying India with S-400 air defense systems, and Pakistan's probably going to buy some more weapons because of that. I know China can just produce their own, but from what I remember, Pakistan is largely armed with American equipment, so they might there might be an opportunity for the United States to step in and sell them equipment. Probably not going to get the F-35, but uh, they'll probably get something. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't expect uh, the Pakistanis to take this deal sitting down. They'll probably try to get their own S-400s if if we're being honest. Uh, the Kuwaiti government has resigned, and I believe the king there has accepted the resignation, and they're now in a political crisis where they have no government. So we'll, we'll see how things go for Kuwait. I'm pretty sure they'll be relatively safe, given the relative stability of their region, which seems odd to say when you're talking about the Middle East, but Iran and Arabia are on speaking terms right now, and Iraq is not a dystopia. So, they should be relatively fine for now. Relatively fine now in the Middle East of all places. You know, every day there, there's something new. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's Kuwait. We talked about Nigeria. There were bombings that have rocked uh, the city of Keita in Pakistan. And on the subject of Pakistan, they have joined the list, a growing list of countries requesting the release of Afghanistan's frozen assets. Uh, assets frozen by the United States, uh, sanction regime. And now you have countries like Russia and Pakistan, and I believe Iran, who are advocating the release and the unfreezing of these assets. We'll see if that happens, though. I imagine it'll probably happen some point in the future as a negotiating chip, um, perhaps to get any U.S. civilians that are still in the country out, because I don't imagine the Islamic Emirates going to hand over the weapons that they just so happen, just so happen to find when the U.S. left. But we could use that as leverage to get our civilians out if our administration is smart enough to do so, or at the very least clever enough to think of the idea. Because even if they do think about, of the idea, they'd have to run it by the Taliban, and then the Taliban would have to accept the deal. Um, but would they make a deal with the United States, though? That's another question altogether. Because if you remember, way back in May, when it was decided that we were going to stay for an extra four months, because if you remember, the withdrawal date from Afghanistan was May 1st. That was when we were supposed to be gone. Biden administration pushed that back to September 1st. Well, actually, they pushed it back to September 11th. But they pushed it back by four months. And I said it back then, we broke our end of the deal. The Taliban's going to get violent again. That's exactly what they did. And over the summer, 
they took the country back. So that was a deal broken by us. It was negotiated by us, but we broke our end of the deal, even if our foreign policy team used these frozen assets as leverage to get U.S. citizens out of Afghanistan who are still stranded. Would the Taliban be willing to make another deal with us, or would they see us as too unreliable? That's an interesting question. We'll, we'll see if we can get as far as to make the deal in the first place. But definitely something to think about. Uh, the U.S. Embassy staff in Yemen, some of them have been detained by the Houthis uh, in the city of Sana'a. Uh, so that's like in the northern part of Yemen, in the area where most of the cities and urban populations are concentrated. So that's uh, the west of the country. So the northwest of Yemen, the city of Sana'a, where the U.S. Embassy was, our, some of our staff have been detained by the Houthis following gains that they have made in their major offensive. Uh, it's a slow and grinding offensive. It's not a, it's not a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan or anything like that. But they are still making slow and steady progress, as I imagine they would. And now we have embassy staff that have been detained. Ethiopia, in another mountainous country that's in uh, a bit of a, a bit of a rough spot. I hate to say between a rock and a hard place, but I guess between a mountain and a mountain place would be accurate. Ethiopia has sent peace feelers to Tigray. Um, I guess they're losing worse than I thought they were. They are appear to be panicking right now. So we'll, we'll see if Tigray accepts this. And we'll also see if Ethiopia, um, hopefully, doesn't try to make the same mistake that they made before when they lost their army to a Tigray ambush where they unilaterally declared a ceasefire um, and pretended that the Tigray would just accept that and go, you know, I guess we'll just stop shooting at you. Which is the exact opposite of what Tigray did. They went on the offensive. And now it is the Ethiopian capital that's in danger. Rather than the Tigray capital, which was captured earlier on. They took that back and now it is Addis Ababa that is in danger. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. And we'll see if it really is just meant to buy time for Ethiopia to get its, to get its shit together again. Because, you know, building an army takes time. So we might we might see them try again. And with some renewed vigor and a bit of uh, realism smacked into them by humiliation, perhaps that route that they suffered was just the Battle of Bull Run. And now they know that they're in for the long run. and They might double down on their efforts. I don't know. I will refrain from making too many... Uh, parallels between this war and the American Civil War, but that's sort of the frame of reference that I get here in the event that Tigray refuses to accept peace, but Ethiopia starts fighting back. And then you have a total war on your hands where it's either total victory or total defeat. And one side's gonna have to win, and one side is not gonna look too pretty when it's over. 
So we'll, we'll see how things go in Ethiopia. I believe they're at a, a bit of a crossroads right now. And if they go down the path of total war, we might see something ugly. But that's Ethiopia. And we will get to the meat of this episode in just a minute. Alrighty, folks. Let's get into the meat. We'll start this episode off by talking about Haiti in crisis. So, some gangs in Haiti have continued their siege of the country. Oh, now, I missed the coverage of this. I didn't see it. But now I do see it. And apparently, the gangs... Uh, what's their name? Ah, the G9 Gang Federation. So it's a collection of various gangs in the country that have put in place this siege, as I call it, of the country. They have gained control over the fuel distribution in the country by seizure of a port, because Haiti is uh, is basically an island country. They have their neighbor, the Dominican Republic, the but they're both on an island anyway, so you have to get the you have to get supplies in by water, uh, especially like fuel. So by blockading the port, they've seized control of the fuel in the country and the fuel distribution. They've put the country under siege, and in light of this, Canada has withdrawn embassy staff members, and leaving what they say the essential workers only. Um. So there's that. But this effect of siege has been eased somewhat, only a little bit, and that has allowed many to get some of the gas and fuel that they need, and there were really long lines at the gas station in some of the pictures that I saw. However, this move made by that gang federation came with an ultimatum, and it stated that the Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, had to resign, or the siege, and others call it a blockade, I feel like I should say that, others call it a blockade, I like to call it a siege, because that's what it feels like it is, especially now that they're making demands <laughs> on the government, but Ariel Henry had to resign, or else the blockade, or siege, would resume, and people would go without gas and fuel again. So, there, it's a really rough situation Haiti has stumbled into right now. Uh, seems like, it, I, I don't even know what to say. We've seen militaries take over countries. We've seen that in Myanmar. And we've seen it in Sudan now. But um, we haven't seen a, a collection of gangs take over the country. That's, that's wow. That's wow. Uh, now, there is a saying, though, regarding insane people running the asylum. But I guess in Haiti's case, uh, it'd probably be more accurate to say that the, uh, the criminals are running the prison in Haiti. And we'll, we'll leave it at that. Now, we're going to talk about Belarus and Poland again. Uh, I, I mean, it feels like I talk about this every week, but uh, the story keeps evolving just enough for me to have new stuff to talk about on the issue. Uh, and don't don't let me miss out on a easy work day. Um, but um, yes, as of now, 
the border dispute between Poland and Belarus has escalated even more. And it's, it's really crazy to think where we've come on this issue between Poland and Belarus. Because when I stop and think about it, we started talking about this back after the elections a year almost a year ago if it wasn't a whole year ago already the elections in belarus where lukashenko won by questionable margins but i i'd say that even if we had a legitimate number he probably still would have won but that was what we started talking about this over the tensions between belarus and poland and back then it was belarus and lithuania and poland was sort of a secondary player lithuania backed the opposition Belarus didn't appreciate that, and then they got into a spat. The ba- the rest of the Baltic countries sided with Lithuania. Poland sided with Lithuania. And Russia sided with Belarus. And we sort of saw the groundwork for what we're seeing now way back then. And we didn't even know it until now. Where these migrants that were coming through the Belarus countryside into Poland have been stopped with all the military might that Europe has to muster. Which isn't all that much. But But really, the reaction to this movement of migrants through a different channel into Europe has been met with a radically different response from countries that say that they're pro-migrant and practice an open borders policy with the migrants. Because when they come from the south through say Hungary or Italy or will come through Greece through Italy or through Spain it's we have to let them in but when they're coming from the east and these are people coming from the same region of the world you know North Africa the Middle East Afghanistan these are the same people the same groups of people just coming through different channels well when they come from Belarus in, into Poland there's a that's that's the issue that's an issue and uh it's really escalated from a dispute between poland and belarus to an international dispute concerning all of their neighbors and almost all of europe courtesy of the eu and i guess in this case nato because um even the uk got involved the eu accused russia and belarus as i mentioned uh an earlier talkings about this the eu has conducted belarus and russia conducting hybrid warfare by using migrants to destabilize poland and the uk came in upping the ante by deploying a small number of troops to the polish border with belarus uh if you if you didn't think it was spicy enough now there's UK troops on this border. Now, if only they would defend their own borders like they do for Poland. Ah, that's crazy. <laughs> but, um, yes. I, I see a revival of the Anglo-Russian rivalry right now. Because Britain is acting reckless. Britain is being straight reckless. Uh, the Polish deployed their troops at the border. The British have deployed troops with them. The rest of Europe has not deployed a man to the Polish-Belarus border. But is this 
sort of what I talk about when I say Britain has options now that they're not a part of the EU when I talk about how they are a symbol of what you could be without the EU because you gotta think from the Polish perspective Britain sends troops to aid you the EU sends letters and diplomats Britain sends troops and the supranational entity that you're a part of gives you words and sends you their regards. I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we, we, there might be ramifications to what we're seeing now that we might not be able to see. And potential increase in Euroscepticism might be one of those ramifications. Because again, when you think about who your real friends are, is it the people that sent their best regards or the people that sent you troops? Hmm, I wonder who it is. I know the Belarusians know who their real friends are. It's Russia. The Russians sent troops. Um, th this whole thing is escalating. Like incredibly quickly especially for what we've been used to seeing in modern times you know when the United States isn't involved things like this usually don't escalate like this um, because again the UK deployed troops to the Belarus Poland border Turkey went as far as banning Syrian Iraqi and Yemeni flights that going to Belarus where they would they would stop in Turkey and then they would fly to Belarus. Turkey has stopped that. President Lukashenko of Belarus ups the ante himself. He says he wants Russian Iskander missile defense systems. And he said, quote, I need several divisions in the West and in the South. So that's the Polish and Ukrainian border, Poland in the West, Ukraine in the South. I need several divisions in the west and in the south. Let them be there. Their launch range is 500 kilometers, whereas our Polonaise, uh, their Polonaise, that's the Belarusian air defense systems that they use, uh, is up to 300 kilometers. And that's the quote. So he's up the ante. He's buying air defense systems. Uh, why would he do that? Um, because he has all of NATO to think about right now. And he has to be able to defend himself. Even if Russia will scramble their entire military to defend Belarus, you gotta have a Belarus there to defend. So he's doing that. Russia is also, if the, that was an indication enough, Russia's also being drawn in further and further into this dispute. Um, last week, they scrambled airborne troops, so their paratroopers, flew planes over Belarus, jumped out the planes, and deployed them to positions within Belarus, and, and really throughout the entire country of Belarus, mainly along the border, though. And Belarus was perfectly fine with this. Belarus asked zero questions about this. Uh, I mean, yes, they're a part of a military alliance, 
But I don't think, I don't think Kazakhstan or Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan, I don't think the other alliance members would have had such passive responses to such a sudden deployment of airborne troops to key strategic positions in their country. I don't, like, they consent to having the Russians there, their troop present there, but that's a very, that's a, like a sudden move that gets a lot of attention and really throws into the question who's actually, um, who's actually reigning over this territory? Is it us or is it the people protecting us? I, I think it's the Union State. I think the Union State is getting stronger by the second. And we might see, <clears throat> excuse me, we might see a time, a return to a time, I should say, where Belarus returns to being a geographic expression when talking about Russia. I talk about that happening a lot with Ukraine. But what happens when both of them become geographic expressions within Russia? What, what do we do? And by we, I mean how are countries in Europe and to a lesser extent the United States, how will they respond to that? Because I know my response is going to be, oh, wow, that's cool. So anyway, <laughs> and my response is going to be to talk about it on the podcast. My response is not going to be to try to figure out how I dismantle it, but a lot of other people's response is going to be along those lines. So how will they respond to that uh, seemingly likely future? We talk about how Japan, their prime minister, will be faced with the prospect of having to fight a losing war for Taiwan against China but people apply the domino theory for the fall of Taiwan whereas I would say that if there is going to be a domino theory that actually comes true because it has a history of being a pretty garbage theory but if it's going to come true at all it would be the fall of Ukraine as a domino because then you have all these countries that were once a part of Russia that already have things set up for further integration into Russia. Ukraine falls, there's Belarus, there's the Union State. Ukraine falls, Russia now has a direct land corridor to Transitria, a country that is propped up by Russian money and defended by Russian troops. That's, that screams, we are basically Kaliningrad 2. Kaliningrad 2 is what Transitria is. Ukraine falls, Russia has a direct land corridor to get there. They can deploy more troops and more assets there. They can build infrastructure there. Ukraine falls. Russia can then focus its attention on, say, Moldova, another country that they would appreciate having back in them once again. Ukraine falls and suddenly the door is open now to finally address the Baltic states. And they'll probably do it in similar fashion to what they did in Ukraine, but 
with more refined technique, if you can call it that, because there are significant Russian minority populations in all three of the Baltic countries, uh, with the smallest of them being like around 20% in Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia, it's much larger minorities. So what was done in East Ukraine can probably be done as well in the Baltics if Russia plays their cards right. Ukraine falls, they can focus their attention on how they're going to play those cards. So if there is to be a domino theory, and if it's to come true at all, it's not going to be Taiwan, where China just annexes the entire East uh, Asian sphere and takes the entirety of the West Pacific for themselves, it's going to be Ukraine falling and Russia reintegrating with former Soviet states. Again, if domino theory is to pan out at all. But, let's scale it back. Belarus and Ukraine are on track to returning to being geographic expressions within Russia. Now that makes Russia uh, a bit thicker, uh, definitely prettier to look at on a map, especially if you're Russian. But, and, and it does, it's very interesting borders when you look at it, it kind of like juts out southwards, but then you have the Baltics that are still really close to the Russian heartland uh, around St. Petersburg and pretty close to Moscow as well. But that's that's an outflanking maneuver right there, except in the form of a border instead of a military uh, occupation. So, that being said, I wonder how Europe and the United States will respond to this enlarged form of Russia that we may be seeing in the near future as the Union state progresses and the conflict in Ukraine is at some point in the future brought to a close with a definitive Russian victory. Because let's, let's not kid ourselves, let's all just be honest here. NATO will do nothing for Ukraine. Ukraine cannot win that war on their own, especially if Russia steps in directly, which it doesn't seem like they need to do to destroy Ukraine right now. Or at least not in any large capacity they wouldn't need to do. Pretty sure they could send in their special forces in combination with the existing rebel armies. And that would be the death nail in Ukraine. Or at least the Ukraine we know. So how do you respond? Because a lot of the foreign policy of, say, the EU and the United States is overtly anti-Russia. So Russia enlarging itself and getting stronger is going to be viewed as a threat. What will they do? Will there be more U.S. troop deployments to Europe? Will there be a push for a European army? Will that push go anywhere this time? Or will countries start to take things into their own hands? I definitely see Poland eventually doing that third option. Is they, they're kind of on the border. And they, they technically always have been, courtesy of Kaliningrad. But if Belarus and Ukraine become one with Russia through 
consensual and very unconsensual means in the case of Belarus and Ukraine respectively, then Poland really is on the border with Russia and that's going to be a very uncomfortable reality for those in Poland who have an anti-Russia foreign policy view. It might also have the opposite effect of hardening the line against Russia. We might see countries start going, maybe we're betting on the wrong horse. Let's be friendly with Russia instead. That's another possibility. I see countries like Hungary and Romania going down that route. Um, just by nature of where they are, they're on the border with Russia. And they have historically less animosity towards Russia. Uh, less compared to, say, Germany and Poland. <laughs> and Finland and Sweden, for that matter. I see them going, maybe let's be friendly with Russia. I see Germany... Uh, I see Germany cutting deals. That That's what I see Germany doing. They have their pipeline. Do they really need to get involved? And risk something happening to their pipeline? I don't know. People talk about Russia having undue influence in Europe through energy. And I was one of the people who said that. But what I'm seeing now is that influence is really more of a, a passive influence of consideration. When people do things and say things to you, they consider what they get from you before they act. Because Germany says a lot about Russia, but notice that their actions are often inconsistent with their anti-Russia stance. Case in point, Nord Stream 2. You don't build a pipeline with Russia when you act on an anti-Russia foreign policy. You do build a pipeline with Russia if anti-Russian foreign policy is all words and your actions are actually more neutral towards or friendly with Russia or at the very least cordial. I don't see Germany doing much of anything. Uh, I see them saying a lot I see them saying a whole lot about the evils of Russia. I see them cutting deals. That's what I see. And I guess in a really extreme case, they might cut a deal with Russia for another partition of Poland, and they they get Prussia back. And that'll be some that'll be something to look at. But how will France respond? France is already on that sort of needle's edge where they want to reach out to Russia, and they have, but they've sort of been boxed in by EU and NATO policy uh, and other Western countries that they're in league with saying we must be anti-Russia. How does France respond to an enlarged Russia? Well, probably not a good idea to try to fight them. Let's be friendlier with them. And if you have the fallout between France and countries like UK and the United States over the AUKUS deal, we might see France, after their attempt at making a, a EU army fails and further integration of the EU fails 
as I believe it will. We might see France go their own way. And if they go their own way, having Russia as a friend instead of an adversary gives them incre an incredible geostrategic position where enemies of France on the continent have to deal with the possibility of France in the West and Russia in the East simultaneously. And it wouldn't be unfamiliar to them and it wouldn't be abnormal for them to reach out to Russia. The French and the Russians hated each other back in the 19th century, but they reached out to each other anyway after the rise of Germany. So it's definitely a possibility. I don't, I know most people don't really think in terms like that. And most people think that the borders we see on the map are still the borders we see on the map. Morocco annexed West Sahara. Russia owns the Caucasus and Central Asia right now. So the borders are very different from what they are portrayed to be on the map. And Russia is getting bigger and that's going to impose new realities on the countries on Russia's peripheries, the, the new peripheries. And well, Russia, will, I guess Russia will have more pipelines into Europe. They'll directly own the pipeline going through Ukraine. But um, we'll, we'll definitely have to see how countries respond to that. It'll be very interesting to look at uh, and very interesting to see the waves made by countries who do switch over and take up a more Russia-friendly stance or a neutral one where they actively advocate neutrality towards Russia. That's going to send waves. That's going to send discord um, because the anti-Russian foreign policy view usually doesn't tolerate anything that comes close to being pro or neutral to Russia. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see how countries respond to an enlarged Russia. But I will uh, leave it at that, and we'll keep our eyes on the family favorite on this channel, that being Russia. And we'll move on to the next subject, which is the Bosnian-Serb secession movement. Let's get into this, and we've we've uh, talked a little bit about this one. It popped up, and we spoke of it and some of the potential ramifications of it. But now we have a little bit more to go off of, or at the very least I've looked into more to have to go off of. And the secessionists, these ethnic Serbs in Bosnia, have gained a lot of attention in the recent weeks. The ethnic Serbs in uh, Bosnia now seek to disengage from Bosnia's armed forces, the judiciaries, and the tax systems in the country, and they argue that these systems were put in place by international institutions and diplomats as a part of the Dayton Peace uh, Agreement that ended the war in Bosnia back in the 1990s. And they also argue that they are therefore, they're talking about the army, the judiciary, and the tax systems. This is the unified armed forces between the various ethnic groups and unified judiciary and unified tax system that forced all the ethnic groups to sort of be together in this country. 
Deepak Serbs are arguing that those are because they were put in place by international institutions and are not a part of the Constitution, that they are therefore not enshrined in the Constitution, meaning that they are not law. And that means they've basically chosen to pry their territory away from Bosnia um, through those specific means. Uh, those are the ones that they've chosen. Probably will use others as well that they can think of and get away with. But this is what they've decided on. Now, one of the chief advocates of this Serbian secession movement, uh, Milliard Dodik. Uh, hold on. Okay, okay, okay. Because I could have sworn the name was different. His name is Milo Rad. All right. Milo Rad uh, Dodik. There we go. I got lost in my notes. So Milo Rad Dodik, my notes auto-corrected to Milliard. Um, but Milo Rad Dodik, he has said that he will not sacrifice peace for the Republic of Srpska. And that's sort of the name of the territory within Bosnia we're talking about, Srpska. Um, he says that he won't sacrifice peace for that. We'll see if the rest of the movement agrees with him in time. But um, Germany, America, and the EU have condemned this talk of secession. But efforts for it have continued within Bosnia. And have seemed to gain strength as they have also gained a larger response. And we'll see how far the response goes, as well as how far the secessionist movement does as well. Because there's a big fear that there's going to be another civil war in the country. Uh, as they basically rip up the peace deal that ended that civil war. And it was a pretty messy one. It's part of how the Balkans got its reputation for being a mess. So we'll, we'll really have to keep our eyes on the two sides of this one here. But, um, uh, yes, these, how do I put this, how do I put this, how do I put this? There are ethnic Serbs trying to leave Bosnia, and given that they are ethnic Serbs trying to leave, there is a distinct possibility that the Serb-dominated country of Serbia, right next door, might get involved due to ethnic sympathies uh especially if the country that is bosnia does descend into a civil war and you see ethnic based violence again we might see serbia get involved to protect their fellow serbs that's a distinct possibility due to the racial and ethnic makeup of the country and the people we're talking about and they're the kinship that they share, it's a very strong one. It's not just me saying, oh, they're this race, and they're also this race. They're going to come together. It's more of a, they identify with one another enough to where it's a possibility, if you understand that. So, with that as a possibility, we then address the fact that Serbia is an ally of Russia. 
Now, while I do not see Russia deploying troops to Serbska in the events that Bosnia does descend into a civil war, um, even though there were pan-Slavic movements back way back in the day, I don't see those movements uh, moving any Russian hearts this time around. But what I do see in the events of uh, chaos in Bosnia is a great potential for Serbia to deploy troops instead. That's what I see. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that there's a very similar likelihood that NATO will deploy forces to the region again if Bosnia has a civil war. Which, if you look at the territory that Serbska makes up, it's almost half of the country that is basically threatening to secede. Half of the territory of Bosnia that's threatening to secede. And tearing up the institutions that brought about the peace in their attempt to leave. That's going to have consequences for those who choose to stay. Uh, if for... If nothing else, it sets the precedent on how they get to secede as well. We just don't participate in these institutions. We just say it's unconstitutional, and we don't adhere to them. And there's nothing... The government won't do anything to stop us. Bosnia is probably going to try to stop this. And there will be international forces like, again, the US, the EU... Eh, eh, on the EU, but NATO. <laughs> there will be international forces that do try to stop them from doing so. Bosnia may not be a part of the EU, and they may not be a part of NATO, but I'm pretty sure they'll get involved. And the same goes for Serbia. So, in the event of a mess, uh, I see troops getting deployed on both sides both by Bosnia and the secessionists, as well as their some of their foreign backers. And it looks like a tangle of alliances is forming over the issue of Serb secession in Bosnia. A tangle of alliances, indeed. Huh. I feel like I've seen this movie before. I, I really feel like I've seen this movie. What do they call it? World War... Uh... Oh, that's right. They called it the uh, Great War. That's what they called it. The Great War. It's an old movie. It's an old one. It came out back in uh, 1914, but it's a great one. But all jokes aside, we may have a mess on our hands in the Balkans again. And who knows how that will pan out because I don't know if America will commit itself but other NATO members might as Britain showed they can deploy troops to NATO members at the turn of the dime would they deploy troops here as well I mean you might say no they have no reason to be there but what reason do UK troops have being on the border between Poland and Belarus I'm just saying Britain is a bit of a wild card right now they're, they're acting reckless we might see British troops pop up here we might see uh, Russian S-400 just magically pop up on the other side of the border 
and start blasting people out the skies. <laughs> I feel like if this does go down in the way that people expect, which is violently, and I'll be, I'm on that side too, I believe this is going to end in violence. The degree of the violence just remains to be seen. That's my perspective. If it does end that way, it's going to be a mess. Like, I mean, people are going to be fighting dirty. Like, everyone's going to be fighting dirty in this conflict. And it may be the prelude to something bigger, but we don't know. We won't make too many historical parallels here. World War I is a very, very peculiar case. Um, which is why it's regarded as a tragedy, whereas World War II is just a straight-up man-made disaster. But, we'll keep our eyes on this. Lots of, uh, conflict seems to be brewing in Europe. Mm, lots of conflict in Europe. We got France and Britain. We got France and Turkey. That one's gone quiet for now. You have Turkey and Greece. That one's also gone quiet for now. You have Cyprus and, Nor and Northern Cyprus, which is just an extension of the Franco-Greek alliance uh, against Turkey. You have Russia and Ukraine. You have Belarus and Poland. Belarus and Lithuania. This seems to be a whole lot of issues in the continent of Europe. And they might spill over at some point. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure what exactly is going to kickstart that explosion. Or maybe it'll just be a really, really long fuse that doesn't go anywhere. And you just get a, a whimper at the end instead of an explosion. But the fuse is gone and you have a significant change over time. We could see, I definitely see Russia getting bigger. We could see political alliances in Europe reconfigure themselves around that new reality. We could s Again, Kanzuk could just pop up out of nowhere. And suddenly Britain becomes an empire again. And we'll, we'll just have to, we'll just have to see where it goes. So, but that's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Whew. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, say our boosts.